For many decades, premillennialism has been the dominant viewpoint among American Christians when it comes to their eschatology. Yet in recent years, the postmillennial viewpoint has been growing in popularity, and many churches are finding themselves shifting how they view their role in bringing about God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. However, not all churches are able to survive such a drastic shift in theology. On this episode of Forge and Anvil, we will discuss how postmillennialism destroyed a church plant and caused its members to uproot from the city of origin. If you've ever considered starting a church plant or are hoping to join one, we hope today's conversation will challenge you to avoid a kamikaze strategy and instead will cause you to look and think deeper about how you can implement the Great Commission in your neighborhood. Welcome to Forge and Anvil, where we hammer out uncomfortable conversations about culture, theology, and politics to sharpen ourselves for the race set before us. My name is Connor. I am host of this podcast. I am a husband and a father and an overall uh, lover of Christ. So I am usually joined by my co-host, Michael Aper. Uh, He has to take several Uh, Nights off pretty frequently due to his busy schedule at seminary, but tonight it is not seminary that's kept him away. Unfortunately, it is the flu. So be praying for Michael and his household as they get over the sickness. But I am joined by my guest, Joshua Hames. So Joshua, go ahead and tell our audience who you are and what you do. Yeah, so as uh, you just said, my name is Joshua Hames, and uh, I am currently serving at Pilgrim Hill Reformed Fellowship. We uh, made the move from Los Angeles, California. Oh, gosh. We made the move in uh, in January, landed here in the Nashville area in May. And I am full-time with the church and full-time trying to start a Christian media company called uh, The Forge, which back there. All right. The Forge, and uh, our our mission is to equip the saints with tools and weapons to build, defend, and expand the new Christendom. And we hope to uh, eventually get into documentaries and filmmaking. For now, we're doing podcasting, and uh, we're going to be publishing some books. And I'm pressing into my YouTube channel, The Standard, with Joshua Hames. And yeah, that's a. I'd say that's that's me in a nutshell. I mean, the most important thing is that I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm a husband and a father of one one year old and one that is on the way due in April. So that's awesome. me. Well, congratulations on the new addition to the family. That's wonderful. We're definitely a big fan of big families, and welcome to the show. And uh, we'll definitely unpack a lot of what you talked about and more of your story. But before we get started, for you listening. Uh, be sure to check out last week's episode that we did with Andrew Isker, a.k.a. Boniface Option. It was an awesome conversation about uh, chopping down the idols of our modern day. So be sure to check that out if you haven't already. Please like and share this video to boost us in the algorithms. Follow us on Twitter at Forge and A for additional content and updates on the show. And share this video. And we are live on YouTube, Rumble, and 
X or Twitter, whatever you prefer. So feel free to repost the stream. It really does help us out. And if you're wanting to be a part of the conversation, jump over to Rumble or YouTube to join in the chats. And we may just uh, answer your questions and read some of your comments out loud as it pertains to our conversation. But uh, either way, we're glad to have you here. So yeah, Joshua, let's go ahead and get right into it. So uh, you have a pinned tweet that is kind of a, a what initially caught uh, my attention when it comes to uh, your content creation that you've been putting out on X, um, talking all about how post-millennialism destroyed your church plant. So go ahead and start from the beginning and uh, and tell us a little bit about that story and take your time. Yeah. So uh, let's see, the very beginning... The very, very beginning would be uh, I got I really started following Christ uh, when I was 18, uh, when I got to college. And I say I really started following Christ. I'm actually still trying to figure out how my uh, new pedo-baptistic convictions uh, fit in with my the way I used to tell that story is that I got saved at 18, and now I don't exactly know what to say. But I know that I did start really following Christ and uh, started to love him and love his word at 18 when I got to college. And at that point, I started going to a little church plant, a little Acts 29 church plant that uh, really just revolutionized the way I understood the church and my walk with Christ. And the pastor, Chad Davis, took me under his uh, um, mentorship. And I lived with him for a while. And I went through several church planting residencies. And he kind of spoke into me and spoken into my life and discipled me. And I really got a love for the church and a desire for church planting. I remember um, I was very evangelistic in college and did a lot of ministry with international students. I roomed with an uh, international student named Leo. He was from Germany. And I kept bringing him to church. And he said to me, uh, if churches were like this everywhere, everyone would want to go to church all the time. And I was like, you know what? You're right. You know, and so I remember that's kind of when I was like, I want to take this to places that need it. And so I really was inspired by um, really my love for the church and, and some experiences I had in college. And and then I was poured into by uh, some uh, in, in the Acts 29 church planting world. You know, it's all about church planting. Right. And so getting up, the, raising up the next generation of church planters. And so, like I said, I went through these residencies and uh was reading a lot of Tim Keller, reading In the City, For the City, and Center Church, and um, uh, then, uh, let's see, all, all those, all the books in that, uh, in that genre, basically, and uh, I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar with SOMA, but we were very influenced by the uh, SOMA, uh, it's a non-denominational church planting network um, that kind of overlaps with uh, Acts 29, so, um, so we got really influenced by SOMA, and I went through a SOMA residency and went to go, basically got sent out from my church at, uh, how old was I? I think I was 23. I was 23. I was sent out from my home church in Mississippi to plant a church in Los Angeles, California. Like I said, reading all these books in the city for the city, we had this view of taking the city uh, for Jesus, but not really taking the city, more like being a faithful witness in the city. Um, and you know, I was really inspired by Tim Keller talked about how we, uh, um, we lost the culture in a lot of ways in our country because Christians fled the cities. And so the, um, so the solution then is for Christians to come back to the cities and, 
you know, be a faithful witness for Christ. And I was really inspired by that. And I gathered a core team and we moved out from our little town in Mississippi to Los Angeles, California. We landed there and we, um, we embedded ourselves in a local Soma church, which was also Acts 29. And we served there and just made it a point to learn the city, learn the culture, we were there for about three years. Me and about 20, 25 people moved out from Mississippi. Mm. And uh, yeah, and so we, as we're learning and growing and getting excited, we uh, eventually, the elders of this church put us through this elder process. And they say we're qualified and they give us a pat on the butt and send us out to go plant our church <laughs> in Venice, California, which was just a, a few miles down from the sending church that we had embedded ourselves in. And so we launched March 1st, 2020. Uh, so pro tip for any aspiring church planters, maybe avoid two weeks before a global pandemic. Mm, um, yeah, solid advice. Yeah, yeah. So we planted it, you know, Sunday, first Sunday was awesome. I basically preached a Tim Keller sermon and uh, we had like 85 people. People were excited. We were excited. And then we had another Sunday. It was similar. And uh, we were meeting at a local rec center in Venice. And then week three was COVID and lockdowns in the middle of California, Los Angeles. It was bananas. And so uh, really 2020 for me and many other people uh, serves as uh, kind of this fulcrum moment for a lot of people. I know it was for me. Uh, what I call it is the Reformation red pill. Mm. Basically, we became, many people uh, who, many guys like me, we're young guys. We're looking to leaders to, um, to guide us on our journey. For me, it was guys like David Platt, Matt Chandler, Tim Keller, you know, uh, Francis Chan. Uh, the kind of the the young, restless, reformed uh, spokespeople. And we were looking at these guys, and then 2020 hits. And um, yeah, it really revealed what, what Vody Bauckham called a, uh, the fault lines that existed mm -hmm. in the evangelical world. Um, what I mean by that is there were divides underneath the surface that no one saw until the pressure cooker of 2020 heated everything up and revealed the fault lines that were underneath the surface. And those fault lines really were around things like critical race theory, like our, our understanding of um, basically cultural Marxism. There was all these leaders that I had been following for uh, a long time. And all of a sudden I see their posts in black squares and they're, they're uh, inviting their their people to go march with Black Lives Matter, but still mandating that they wear the mask or don't gather in person. And we were trying to sort these things out. We're young 20-somethings who are uh, planting this church in Los Angeles. By the way, for anyone who is listening, I now believe way too young and inexperienced. And How old did you say? Can you repeat that? I was 27. 27. 27 wow. years old. And uh, yeah, my other two elders were 27 years old. And I had the only baby in our church plant. And uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, but I mean, that's the, that's the culture in the church planting world. Just take, you know, un the uncharitable way to say it is that we're pimping out our youth. Um, we're taking young men who have a lot of energy, a lot of excitement for Christ. And we're just, 
yeah, like I said, we're pimping them out. We're saying, yeah, go do it. He's giving them a pat on the butt and uh, um, untrained, untested. Uh, I was working out my doctrine of God in my first year as a pastor. You know, I could have, I say that, you know, I could have articulated the Trinity. I couldn't have told you what the economic Trinity versus the ontological Trinity was at that point. Mm. So I said, I was working out my doctrine of God my first year of church planting. And um, anyway, so uh, that's a little tangential, but, um, but yeah, so we're, we're planting in, uh, in the midst of COVID and Black Lives Matter. And those two issues in particular uh, brought about a lot of disenfranchisement among a lot of Christians at this time. We were looking to these men who we were, we considered leaders who had kind of showed us the basics of the reform faith, uh, basically reform soteriology. And uh, really guys that I had idolized, you know, I, I'd listen to their sermons constantly and, uh, and they went soft on both of those issues in a really, and I say soft, that's a generous way to put it, but really um, seeing Matt Chandler post videos about white privilege and then David Platt talking about diversity quotas and the, you know, infamous Anglo eight uh, situation at Matt Chandler's church, all these kind of things. And I don't say that to disparage them. I, I say that I, I do pray that they would repent publicly because them allowing that seed of cultural Marxism into their church, they're not going to become progressive Christians, those guys. Um, but they introduced the uh, poisonous theology to thousands and thousands and thousands of people and potentially set a lot of people down a, a road to apostasy. And so I, I, I hate that I feel like I can't trust them. I won't send anyone towards their resources unless I saw an actual... A lot of those guys probably do know by now that it was a poison pill, a Trojan horse of sorts. But regardless, that's, um, that's, we could go off on a tangent there. But So that's the Reformation Red Pill moment. We see these, I saw these guys that I had been following, and I was in their theological stream, but I saw that they did not have a, a biblical response to those two issues with Black Lives Matter and um, and the COVID situation in our country. And so we scoured the web, me and my other elders, looking for who is holding the line, who is really going to Scripture and and and, uh, and isn't just pulling Bible verses out of a hat, right, that says, you know, love your neighbor means wear the mask. You know, it's just eisegeting verses to right. make it fit a, whatever – narrative that they happen to be immersed in. Um, and we saw that there was a corner of men who were holding the line. And it was uh, what I'm calling uh, dark roast reformed fellas. <laughs> and, uh, so I was, I was, I called myself reformed and it's like uh, princess bride. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And, then, uh, and so uh, whenever I realized, Oh, there's more to reformed theology than Calvinistic soteriology. And so, what I call reform, uh, dark roast reformed is Calvinistic, confessional, and covenantal. And mm -hmm. those guys uh, who who kind of – and uh, it's painting with a broad br brush here, but I'm talking right. about guys like, you know, out of Moscow, of course, you've got Bodhi Bauckham in the Reformed Baptist world along with James yep. White and all these other guys who I looked up to uh, look up to and respect a ton. I saw that they were holding the line. Right. And, um, and they <laughs> – they weren't just pulling Bible verses out of a hat. In particular, um, what really I think was one of the moments, my big red, red Reformation red pill moments, was coming to understand the doctrine of sphere sovereignty and how that applied to the COVID response. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a reason why Moscow 
was well, Doug and them at Christchurch were doing psalm sings out in public with no masks. It wasn't just to be a nuisance. They were doing it with a theological framework that was uh, guiding their missiological activity, right? They, they had a tradition and generations who had thought through these issues, and so they knew how to respond. And that was so huge for me, seeing that hey, these guys aren't just making it up as they go. Um, they've, they've got a theological framework that helped them to know exactly what to do in this situation. And that's why all these CREC churches, they call it the COVID bump. How many families did you guys get in the COVID bump? Um, anyway, so we see these guys, we take the Reformation red pill. We want what they have. So really we begin the journey of reforming our church over the next, uh, over the next year or so. And, okay. and then we so, just start so real quick. I want to, I want to pause there because you've thrown out a lot of a lot of different terms and you know we uh we have a wide ranging audience everything from from pastors and uh theologians and uh, and guys that just like to uh, like to read John Calvin all the way to you know to people that it's their first time being introduced to the faith through our podcast so i want to i want to just um maybe unpack a couple of those things that you mentioned there so uh first of all you mentioned sphere sovereignty and how that was really uh, impactful to you during the COVID crisis. Um, in fact, actually, maybe before we unpack uh, the sphere sovereignty, I first actually wanted to ask you, why did the CRT push in churches not capture you? What do you think it was that kept you and, uh, and your church plant grounded and uh, you didn't sway with that giant... Uh, a black square uh, phenomenon that we saw in 2020? That's a really good question. Um, I thought about it some because I was friendly to that kind of stuff. You know, I, uh, when I was in college, I started getting introduced to that way of thinking that kind of theology. And there are kernels of truth in it on the Christian side of things, you know, like, uh, you know, the idea I remember really trying to understand white privilege and trying to understand, like, okay, is there truth in this? Is, is it this all lies? What's going on? I'm, and really, it was reading um, by the grace of God, I think, just getting introduced to the right resources at the right time. But there was something in me that always it didn't sit quite right. I would hear my friends, the same people who would, were talking about um, uh, their minority friends experiences and how those differ and how that means that white people have privilege. I was tracking with them, but then I started to notice that a lot of these Christians were also make like they were apologists for voting Democrat too. Mm. And they were, I remember having a conversation in college with a guy who was kind of taking me down that road and he was saying, um, you know, you can't just be a one issue voter, you know, like abortion. There's more to there's more to life, you know, than abortion. And I was kind of like, mm. OK, yeah, but it's also a genocide. <laughs> you know, and yeah. <laughs> we were we were talking about that. And I remember seeing these kind of uh, I, I guess I began to see that there was um, the, the people that were beginning to talk about diversity and the importance of diversity and how diversity is our strength and, you know, all this kind of stuff that they were also uh, beginning to be like apologists for left-wing politics. Right. And I, I just was really uncomfortable with that. I found, I considered myself more politically neutral um, at the time. Mm. And uh, yeah, so I guess I'm not sure there was just red flags 
that that kept coming up in me whenever the all the CRT stuff was going on. I, I was friendly to it, and even at the beginning, I think we. If, if I, oh, I'm so glad they're not on the internet. My old sermons, whenever I was first planting the church, you know, I I think that those would have been a little squishy and a little CRT friendly on accident before mm. I had language for everything. Right. But, but yeah, but so I think I just got introduced to the right resources at the right time. But it was it was also just the people that were going that route. I was beginning to see other fruit that looked gross. And I was like, this seems like it's connected. Okay. Um, and so I, I guess that was part of the the red flag in me. You know, it's it's hard to say for sure though. Yeah. Yeah, I would say I would say I had a similar experience. You know, it's it's really easy. Uh to be bullied into the idea of uh, acknowledging your white privilege uh, as a form of Christian kindness that <laughs> that yeah. really is, is so damaging because to your point, I mean, I, I, I similarly had many individuals talking about uh, why I had white privilege. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I was, uh, always raised very conservative, but we're talking like, like Fox news conservative, right. um, you know, meaning it was, it was just kind of surface level. My parents just voted Republican. I always heard, you know, we just vote for the lesser of the two evils, yada, yada. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of deep involvement in the political realm. Right. And nowadays I'm more informed than most, and it can be frustrating in its own right. But, you know, ultimately, uh, when, when I kept being told that, uh, I had this white privilege, um, it was probably uh, right before COVID hit, I had a coworker tell me that she was not able to be racist to me because of I'm white. Mm -hmm. And, and of course I always, I always, uh, again, surface level conservatism understood the, the sort of griping about, uh, Oh, this is just reverse racism. But it's like the moment I had that in the workplace where it's like, Oh, this, this woman, coworker genuinely believes that she can say whatever she wants to me about race and yeah. it's not inappropriate because I'm white and mm. she genuinely believes it. And that was like probably the first eye-opening thing of like, it wasn't just someone that was maybe giving a little bit of a little bit of leeway to the mm. CRT arguments. It was someone that had fully embraced it to the oh, point yeah. where it's like, man, they could be dangerous to me in the workplace. That is interesting that you say that now that you say that I, that was Probably my first, my, I had the exact same experience in my first, now that I'm thinking about it, the first big red flag I had was having a guy explain the fact that a minority cannot be racist towards white people because you have to have power and privilege in order to be racist. And I remember thinking to myself, that is nonsense. Like right. that is just, that's nonsense. You like, and I, what I, then I began to realize oh, there is a battle for the dictionary that's going on. If they can just redefine the word racist to mean this insane left-wing idea of critical race theory racism, then what else can they just redefine? I mean, it was getting into like 1984 territory. That was a big check in my gut, that same exact thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the young, restless reform guys, uh, you know, really uh, allowing CRT into their church. And, uh, you know... Uh, so many of these pastors and theologians, uh, you know, kept reassuring those of us that brought up concerns about CRT that it was just an analytical tool. Right. And honestly, we're beginning to see the fruit of CRT. I mean, we've been seeing the fruit ever since really the 60s, if you're, we're talking American history. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we've been seeing the fruit more and more lately among the youth. We see so many, uh, so many race based assaults happening in, 
in junior high, high schools, um, you know, mm-hmm. let alone what's happening on the streets of our inner cities. And, and I, I truly think to your point, I, I hope that some of these men will repent and acknowledge mm-hmm. that they really uh, rolled out the red carpet for this ideology yeah. that now is genuinely creating a new generation of genuine racists and yeah. racist against uh, against Asians, racist against white people, racist, you know, it, it, it's all across the board. We have we have so divided everyone up into oppressor versus oppressed class. And mm. so much of that is based off of race. And of course, it's based off of your sexual preferences as well. And it's just becoming uh, so tribal that now we're starting to wonder, you know, so many people who haven't been paying attention are wondering, you know, why, why is there this tribalism? popping Mm. up and it's because we've had decades of of uh this uh, marxist ideology putting people into boxes uh you know in even even some new age stuff like the enneagram and uh and uh you know uh myers briggs and things like that just constantly wanting to put people in these boxes and then suddenly we're wondering why oh we've divided everyone up into categories and divided them up into tribes and suddenly we're shocked that there's tribalism and of course crt and 2020 was really just the catalyst that, uh, um, to your point, you know, the pressure cooker was going, but, but, uh, 2020 is when we hit our boiling point and that's when so much of this stuff came to the surface. Right. And the, and the church was supposed to be the vanguard, right? The church right. was supposed to be the defense. And I, and I can remember distinctly there was, there was about a, uh, probably about a two or three, maybe we call it a month long period while I was getting the Doug bug, and I started hearing, uh, um, started watching more blog and May blog videos, and um, listening to these talks. And uh, and there was uh, one blog and May blog in particular when he talked. Wait, say what you what did you wait? What did you just say? I just lost my train of thought. Uh, about the the pressure cooker and boiling point finally hitting twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, oh man. I just went totally off the off the tracks. I lost it. Okay, that's all right. Maybe it was uh, earlier talking about uh, how we've really been divided up into tribes, and now we're wondering where the tribalism came from. Yeah, yeah. Nah, just move on. It's gone. All right, all right. Just crashed and burned. <laughs> no worries. Well, if you think of it, feel free to feel yeah. free to jump back. But uh, um, anyways, but so um, jumping uh, forward in your story um, again to uh, you mentioned you started. Uh, looking at the guys in Moscow and you started to learn the idea of sphere sovereignty. Mm. So again, you know, we, uh, we cover a lot of um, politics. We've covered a lot of news stories throughout the course of this uh, podcast, as we've kind of been slowly um, finding what our focus is as a podcast. We're still new and we have that flexibility and uh, our audience is gracious enough to follow us where we want to go. But uh, uh, again, so many of these theological terms, we have a lot of, uh, we have a wide range in our audience of people who understand these terms. So, explain sphere sovereignty because i think so many of our audience so so many individuals in our audience who don't know what sphere sovereignty is would greatly benefit from a maybe a layman's explanation yeah so uh really it was distilled in the works of abraham kuyper and uh if you want to go find you can look on youtube or you can buy a uh buy his book lectures on calvinism he he goes into it there and among other places um, basically sphere sovereignty is, is what I love about it is it's taking 
the doc to me, I think it's taking the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture and really pushing it out into the edges of everything, not everything, but uh, in particular into uh, the relationships of authority and submission um, and how God has made an order to world that has authority and submission top to bottom. Um, and it, the doctrine of sphere sovereignty breaks up the three uh, major, the three main governments that God has instituted, namely uh, the government of the family, the church, and the civil magistrate. Um, and what really blew my mind was coming to the the other big Reformation red pill. Side note is for me in 2020 was getting back. I think I say getting back, really discovering the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture for all of faith and life. How my question and what I told all the people in my church plant was ask constantly ask the question, what does the Bible say about that? And because right. the Bible doesn't speak about everything, but it speaks to everything. And on that note, as it relates to the doctrine of sphere sovereignty, the Bible tells us what the government's role is and what the boundaries of its authority are. And when I discovered that, it was this, you know, that Tim and Eric uh, meme. The, it just, like, my mind was blown. I I was so excited about it because I, I realized this was why Moscow had the response that they did. But so basically, um, uh, you divide, the, the Bible gives the boundaries of the of authority and submission between the church, the, uh, the church, the family, and the state. And the family's, so head is the father and the wife submits to the husband children submit to the both the wife and the husband and he is the head of his home he is the governing authority of his home so that's the home and then you've got the church and that's qualified biblically qualified elders they are uh, the authority over all all those who are uh, members of that church all those who are in submission to their eldership and uh particularly if you want to, the, the thing that helped me to remember this, well then, well, then we've got the government. Let's just go there. Then you've got the, the civil magistrate and we all submit to the civil magistrate, but, but uh, we take Romans 13 and first Peter two. And we see that what the, the role of the civil magistrate is to punish evil and praise good. And we see in Romans 13, that God has given the sword to the civil magistrate to punish evil. That means capital punishment. That also just means to protect its citizenry from wickedness. So uh, the civil magistrate is 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 given the authority by God to punish evil and praise good, uh, not to do good. Doing good is the realm of the church and the family. And so when the government begins to overstep its bounds, it cannot do good very well because its its weapon, its tool that God has given it is the sword. So the government's the government has given been given a sword. This is a good way to remember it. The government has been given a sword. The family, the husband, the father has been given the rod of discipline, and the church has been given the keys of the kingdom. So you've got the sword, the rod, and the keys of the kingdoms. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, the keys of the kingdom refers to church discipline and excommunication. Um, and the elders of a church, that is one of their primary responsibilities. And so God is the one who tells us what the boundaries of those authority are. For example, if I uh, say I have two kids and we say, you know what, that's, I think that's all the kids we're going to have. And 
if my pastor came to me and said, you know what? No, I think you need to have more kids. And in fact, you're going to be under uh, church discipline if you don't have more kids. So what's go what would be going on there is that the church would be overstepping its bounds of authority. And I do not have a responsibility to obey my pastor in that because that is not his sphere of sovereignty. Right. I am the husband of my home. And so I decide that now if I was, if, you know, if I was in legitimate sin for my reasoning or something like that, that's another, that's, that's a kind of a different um, realm. The, my pastor is, has to determine whether or not I'm in legitimate sin against God's word. Um, and, and he disciplines according, accordingly. Uh, and it's the same for the state. You know, when the state gives mandates, right, that go beyond its scope of authority, then, it, you know, people have a misconception. We're just supposed to obey the government unless they tell us to disobey Christ. Well, that's, that's, that's not what we see. I mean, the, the guy who wrote Romans and, you know, and 1 Peter, both of them were killed as enemies of the state. You know, they right. weren't just docile, obedient, you know, um, so anyway, all that to say, uh, when they are, uh, go beyond the bounds of their authority, then Christians may have a responsibility to disobey because tyranny, civil tyranny ends up being really bad for your neighbor. Right. Right. So if we stand up against tyranny, when the government is overstepping its bounds of authority and leaning towards a tyrannical, you know, tyranny doesn't doesn't lead lead to good things. And so uh, I, I make the case that it's it's very much not loving your neighbor to just sit back and let the government become tyrannical. So, you know, Christians really have to weigh out. And it's not cut and dry. We have to take, we have to really apply wisdom. We've got to be steeped in the word of God and in the Proverbs and uh, apply wisdom on when is the right time uh, to uh, civilly disobey the government when it's overstepping its bounds of authority. So that's that's uh, kind of in a nutshell, the doctrine of sphere sovereignty. Thank you for that. I think that'll be very beneficial to our audience. So you were noticing these crazy guys up in Moscow yeah. and uh, understanding sphere sovereignty. And you said that you saw them uh, doing these, uh, these hymn sings. Uh, in spite of lockdown orders. So go ahead and pick up your story from there. Yeah, so we were seeing that and um, honestly getting really inspired because we, we that's whenever, I remember I, I preached on the doctrine of sphere sovereignty. I think it was uh, Easter Sunday because <laughs> we were just walking through First Peter and uh, and it just so happened that it was on a government, the, uh, the passage where he speaks to the government. So I ended up preaching on that on Easter Sunday. Um, and man, uh, that was, that was a big moment in my reformation red pill journey. I'm seeing these guys out in Moscow and seeing the fruit of these dark roast reformed guys. And so we, like I said, we began reforming and, uh, weeding out our little church plant, right? We had about 35 people who stuck with us through the lockdowns and <clears throat> everything. And we actually began pretty quickly we were we started doing the online thing for a few weeks, but then pretty quickly we we started meeting outside uh, in sunny California. We never missed a Sunday. We met outside at the park <clears throat> in Venice uh, for two 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 years, <clears throat> wow. and um, yeah, we never missed a Sunday too. Um, until it just never rained out or anything. Kind of crazy, but uh, um, so we we start taking our church through this reformation process and. 
we start adding liturgical elements, we become convicted that uh, we want to add some liturgical elements. And then uh, we're, I'm currently, I, we, my, me and my pastor, co-pastor start a degree program at Westminster. So we're getting into the, the deep dive into reform theology there. And, and really our, uh, our disposition changed in a big way. And so when I say we began to weed out our little church, that's what I mean. We went from a winsome church, uh, come, you know, we, I personally prided myself on being one of the cool Christians. Uh, I liked that. I liked people going like, oh, you know, I used, I really don't like Christians, but you're one of the good ones. Like I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I considered myself very winsome. I was, you know, personable. Um, and, uh, and so whenever we planted our church, we were planting a very uh, winsome church. And what I mean by that is really just, uh, I wouldn't say super intentionally, but kind of avoiding difficult topics in favor of preaching a lot of grace, preaching a lot of uh, come as you are. And yeah, Jesus is going to change you. Um, but let's, it's here about, we're about the journey. And, um, you know, we were very authentic in our preaching, you know, we, golly, there's a, there's a whole move in the in this kind of winsome preaching where the the preachers are just using the Sunday pulpit as their confessional where they're like laying out I don't know it's like this obsession with authenticity to the point where it's like man I'm such a sinner I'm such a sinner it's like okay dude why are we following you right. um, I know I get we all are but um, but anyway that's kind of the model it's it really bought into the cultural values of like authenticity and and that kind of thing so whenever we change and so the the way I've come to talk about it is there's uh, we were this winsome church and we we went from aiming at winsomeness to cultural reformation. Um, and before I can really say why uh, this gets into the eschatological discussion, because that's what made the shift for us when we're as we're reforming, we're seeing these guys out in Moscow and going through this reformation process. We're we're preaching through the book of Daniel at that time. And all three of us within a span of a month, we studied it for about seven months. Uh, but within the span of a month, we all, it's almost like the, the, the kindling was all there and the fire just burned up and we were like, we're post-mail. We're, you know, we studied it and, uh, we read the three views books and studied the arguments back and forth. And we, we were all mill and, uh, we, we ended up at post mill right at the exact same time that, uh, Dr. James white became post mill too. So I was like, man, if this guy who hasn't changed a theological position, a major theological position in decades became post mill, there's something to this. So about the same time as that. And so, um, for anyone who's wondering what that basically means in practice is, that we view the end times instead of viewing the end times as inevitably getting worse or staying the same, like a status quo or inevitably getting worse uh, until Christ comes and raptures his people out. Um, we believe that it's actually the reverse, that the, the, the mustard seed of the kingdom was planted in Christ and that it is growing all throughout history uh, or the, as Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Um, and it, a little bit of leaven that leavens the whole loaf. We believe that the whole loaf will be leavened 
that the kingdom of heaven will grow to be the biggest tree in the garden, and that ultimately Christ returns instead of to a world of chaos, that he returns to a Christianized world. And we believe that that's an inevitability. And when you believe that, it it changes everything. At first, the illustration I gave in my little article was it's like when you drop uh, food coloring in water, and at first it's just this kind of cool little amorphous you know, uh, shape. But then once you stir it all in, it changes the color of everything. And that's what post-millennialism was. At first we were like, this is awesome. Whoa, heaven is going to be way more full than hell. Oh my gosh, this is awesome mm-hmm. new. We just, like I think Doug Wilson says, whenever uh, whenever he became uh, Calvinist, it was like, oh, this is so hard, man. It's like so humbling. And then he became Pado baptist It was like, this is a really difficult, dis- difficult decision. But then the post-mill decision was like, wee. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's what it was like for us. It was so fun. And then we had this uh-oh moment when we were like, oh my gosh. Our whole model is to be winsome because we're trying to appeal to uh, appeal to the culture instead of creating culture, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we became what I've called cultural leeches, and as you know, the Western, the Christian Christendom built the most beautiful art and artifacts and architecture, <clears throat> most incredible society to have ever happened. And now we, you know, you just turn on K-Love and you're like, oh my gosh, now we make God's Not Dead movies four, five, six times, you know, (laughs) and, you know, something has gone terribly wrong. What I call that is being a cultural leech. Instead of being culture makers, we're sitting around waiting for Jesus to return, running up the credit cards and leaving the culture to rot, you know? Um, and so, uh, and so we just, instead of being culture makers, we just take whatever the, the, the world is doing and do a Christian crappier version of that. Um, and so we realize, man, that's, you know, if you're dedicated to this winsome model, you're trying to appeal to the, you're not trying to rock the boat. You're trying to appeal to the culture and, uh, it doesn't have this long-term view. It has this view of being a faithful witness in the city or wherever you're placed with no real hope of, Christianizing a culture. Um, no real hope of long-term, lasting, generational change. Uh, the best you can hope for is to be like a firework that burns really bright for Jesus. But we as came to these post-mill convictions and we, we realized, oh, wait, what if, if we win, that changes the battle tactics? I think you mentioned the kamikaze. It's uh, kamikaze Christianity where... Yeah, please explain if, that. Yeah, so if... Uh, um, uh, kamikaze pilots, right? They they know the the basically the battle is lost, but I can do as much damage as I can to the enemy by just sacrificing myself and flying into the the ships, you know, or whatever it is. Um, and so you've got Christians who are saying the basically, you know, the culture, the battle is going to be lost, but maybe we can win a few people for Christ. So let's sacrifice whatever it takes to sacrifice to win a few people for Christ. Um, and I don't want to denigrate that completely or anything like that. There is, there's a lot of no, there's a noble impulse there that's Absolutely. really beautiful. Um, but what the the alternative that I'm getting that I that I became convicted of was not that you shouldn't sacrifice, but that you you need to understand what you're sacrificing and you need to do it strategically. So if you if you don't believe you can win the war, okay, the kamikaze thing makes sense. 
<clears throat> but if you can believe that you're going to win the war and that's inevitable, your battle tactics change. <clears throat> right. And uh, and for us, as we began to consider that, that's whenever we went from the Winsome model to the Cultural Reformation model. And then that's whenever we began to think, uh-oh, we're in Los Angeles. Is this a place in the short term that is is the battle kind of lost here? <laughs> and uh, and if, if we are going to win the war, does that mean that we actually need to regroup and redraw battle lines and uh um and you know and really it came down to you know can i can you faithfully raise a, a christian family in that city and i think we're getting to a point where the answer is no um mm. and and that point will be whenever the state can take your children because you don't affirm their crazy sexuality which that, is currently in the works folks yeah it is and at that point, I say that if you are a Christian in the city in California and you have kids, I'm not, I say if you have kids, I think you have a Christian duty to get out. Um, and I think that we will rethink the way we understand places like California from a Christian perspective. They will become almost, I think they already are. Uh, we need to think of them like foreign mission fields that we, that we don't, we're not going to send, uh, kids that can be taken from their parents right in, in, into that or if we do if if missionaries do that they know what they're getting into they know what they're risking and even still i don't i don't know about that um so anyway it becomes you just you you think about it completely differently you think okay well we're going to win the war what do we need where do we need to go now to make the greatest impact for generations to come so we ended up deciding to close down the church plant um and uh and that was for all of those reasons. But really, we were really wondering, can we make this work? Can we do this? Should we try? Should we, should we you know, God's brought us here. When do we, when do we throw in the towel? When is it right? And we went to go visit a uh, CREC presbytery. They invited us to come observe uh, a CREC presbytery meeting. And uh, it was basically a three-day kind of conference where they go through uh, church business, um, the, the the presbytery business for the West coast um, churches in the CREC. And we just got to come observe, see, we got to see an ordination. That was one big nail in the coffin for me watching a CREC ordination and realizing, yeah, there's no way I would pass uh, the, this ordination exam. They mm -hmm. sat a guy in the middle of all the church, all the elders of the churches. And he had already taken an eight hour test of, ranging from theology, theology, ecclesiology, missiology, practical theology, uh, pastoral counseling, all the rest, a huge test. And then they, they grill him on it. And uh, so he sat there and was grilled for an hour on his answers. And uh, I remember thinking, my elder process was a joke. My, <laughs> it was a joke, you know? And uh, so that was a big nail in the coffin for me. I was like, gee whiz, no wonder I've been having Im imposter syndrome. It's because I didn't have a process. I didn't have an elder process that really says that you're qualified. Um, <clears throat> and um, anyway, so that was a big thing. And then they were talking about the COVID bump and how they all got families during COVID. And um, I was like, this, these are my people. And, uh, and then <clears throat> what, I, what I also, what really was the final nail in the coffin, I think, for me, was seeing the culture of the CREC. Hmm. Um, I... Uh, I remember so distinctly when we got there, 
they they had this wonderful dinner prepared. The wives had made this incredible meal at the church, and there's kids running around everywhere. They said, they said all right, we're going to sing before we uh, eat. And they passed out these little song booklets, these little bulletins, and, and they were like, all right, turn to page seven. We're singing uh, whatever psalm it was. And a guy got on the piano. And I'm like, oh, we're doing worship. Well, where's the projector? You know, like, where's, where's the guy with the guitar? I don't, what are we doing here? And then he got on the piano. And then I heard the most electric, masculine singing that I had. It was these incredibly difficult songs. Like I couldn't even follow Harley, but the, even the little kids were just singing along with all their hearts. So excited to be there. So excited to be worshiping, praising the Lord with psalms. And, uh, and at the end of the singing there was just this kind of bone shaking amen that everyone and i was like this is it this is the kind of culture that i want for my family this is the mm -hmm. kind of culture that i want for my church but i can't give it to them i have not been trained to plant this kind of church so for me that was the the moment where i said nah i can't do this we got to we got to shut this down so we shut it down and uh yeah, and then I, if, the, if you want to touch on anything that I've said from there, we can take a pause from my monologue. Yeah, well, I, I, I thought that was great, and your story is definitely uh, an interesting one. And I think uh, uh, the thing that really stands out to me is the uh, ordination process that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really do think that uh, we need better discipleship among churches. Uh, my wife and I finally attend a church that has a, a decent amount of that. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, uh, we both have... Uh, our own interesting theological uh, backgrounds and kind of the different churches that we attended. You know, we, we moved for, for college. So that naturally means when you go to a Christian college, you try out a bunch of different churches as well. So, yeah. you know, you know, I can, uh, I can only list a couple that I had uh, any, any lengthy attendance at, but I can list probably a few dozen that I at least had uh, a couple of visits to and mm. uh, minor involvement here and there. And, um, this is probably one of the first churches that has a pretty good discipleship model and it's a Baptist church. Uh, you know, we're still part of, uh, the SBC, but, uh, um, but, uh, that, that was greatly important to us because, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, I, I grew up thinking I was called into ministry mm -hmm. and, uh, I, I think I'm called to minister for sure. And, uh, and, uh, I, I definitely think that there will be a time that I may take on a vocational role again, mm -hmm. Uh, in a church. Um, my uh, undergraduate was actually in worship arts. In fact, I'm not even sure if I've mentioned that on the podcast before, but I, I did go to school to be a worship pastor. Mm. Um, now, my program was a, a great program in many ways, but it was a brand new program. And the big flaw that they had was I had about uh, 15 classes a semester. Um, and about uh, 11 of those were either zero credit or one credit performance-based oh classes for music. <laughs> So wow. I was constantly just learning music and performing music and constantly focusing in mm. on the, the, um, the technical aspect of, um, of Sunday mornings that, uh, I was not able to focus on my theology courses nearly as much as I wanted mm. to. So for my theology courses, it was like, just do your best to, to pass it because you got to focus on so <laughs> many things in my program. And I believe they've changed that actually since then, because it was such a new program. I was one of the, I think I was the second graduating class. What from school the was this? Uh, this would have been uh, Grand Canyon University. Okay. Um, so um, that's where I originally did my schooling and uh, uh, how I got there was a whole story in itself that we don't have time for. But, uh, um, but either way, um, so, you know, I, I really, uh, 
I heard so many of these theological concepts in my my college days but uh i'm not i don't want to blame the school and say that the school did a bad job with their theology courses because to be honest i really just couldn't tell you uh (laughs) for for me it was just my program in particular that they immediately changed when they saw it wasn't working so i want to give that school credit i don't want to put down um you know a university that uh um, that may be raising up wonderful leaders. Um, mm. But for my part, I could not focus on the theology as well as I wanted to. Mm. So, you know, from from there, uh, you know, my wife and I, um, we, we I, I graduate, we get married, we decide to stay in Arizona. That's where the, the school was. I'm originally from the Northwest area. And um, so, you know, we, we've kind of been all over. She's originally from California. So uh, now we're living in Arizona and going to a non-denominational church that again had a lot of great things going for it i'm going to say it was a biblical church um but uh but there was a whole uh there was a a admirable emphasis on excellence within their worship service Mm. um and i say admirable because we really should uh want to have excellence in everything that we do as a church um You know, and and it's it's similar to what you mentioned when you were at the CREC, uh, and you you listened to them worship, and you saw that the congregation worship, um, that excellence drew you to that church. So there's nothing wrong with having an excellent uh, worship service, um, but uh, uh, you know when it comes to the discipleship programs in the church, there was a lot lacking there. There was a mm-hmm. not a, a very sparse small group culture. Um, there's a very uh, loose um, leadership process when it comes to, uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell you who the elders were. I know that there were elders in the church, but I wouldn't be able to tell you who they were. So not a high emphasis, mm. very low church, very low church yeah, yeah. for those of you who understand that concept. Um, so we eventually uh, move to Tennessee. Um, so you and I are now neighbors, but, uh, uh, we, uh, we decided to go to this, uh, this Baptist church. We tried a couple churches while we were here. Um, and, uh, but this Baptist church that we went to really, uh, showed that they had a emphasis on discipleship and, um, we immediately started growing much faster mm. than, uh, than we had previously. And the preaching was, uh, verse by verse, uh, as opposed to, um, super topical in nature, um, yeah. you know, occasionally hitting on, uh, maybe some topical, um, subjects that are really important. Um, but, uh, uh, but typically we just see verse by verse preaching as, uh, as, uh, it, it should be. Um, and you know, ultimately, uh, we're still at a Baptist church. So again, for those who don't understand the concept, it's still fairly low church. Um, uh, you know, as, uh, the Baptists tend to be, but, uh, um, such a greater emphasis on that individual discipleship that uh, the the congreg the congregants are just so much more advanced in their faith, um, mm. and uh, and all this to say, I gave a lot of background there to say that uh, uh, you know I, I, as I mentioned, my very first church growing up, I was growing up in a Nazarene church, and uh, um, I was uh, I, I thought I was called into ministry. That's why I went to school for ministry. And uh, again, not saying that that couldn't happen, but. The reason why I felt called into ministry is because I was the most passionate kid in youth group. Yep. And there is a impulse among churches to take the kid that is most passionate about reading his Bible and immediately telling that him that he's called. Um, yeah. And to your point, it's, it's like pipping out the youth, like, you know, the, get the, get the kid who's young and excited to start leading worship for his youth group and to start, uh, 
uh, tutoring underneath the uh, 24-year-old youth pastor, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, and uh, and prepare him to be the next youth pastor. And uh, um, again, I'm not I'm not faulting any individuals here. I'm just saying the the impulse is the is the problem, not necessarily my individual situation. Um, and it wasn't until I, uh, I I discovered this crazy man named Vody Bauckham. <laughs> and uh, I, I heard him, uh, I actually discovered him originally when he was going through his heart issues. Um, mm. I, a news site reported on his heart issues. And that's how I originally found this man and uh, um, started listening to Vody Bauckham, started understanding that there is a certain level of depth that you should, you know, that, that every individual in the church should seek to go mm. uh, in their individual in, in their individual faith. Uh, and specifically I heard Vody um, in a, in a, some video somewhere, I'll maybe see if I can find it for show notes mm. later. But uh, uh, he was talking about how um, the moment we see that there's someone passionate about reading their Bible every day and praying every day, the church just equips them to go and um, you know, they must be called into ministry. It's like that, that should be the absolute, that, that should be the, the, the entry uh, the the entry requirement for Christianity, someone that desires reading the word every day and praying yeah, every day, right. you know, that, that should be a prerequisite to the faith. Um, you know, not, mm. not to be, not to sound like I'm being workspaced um, cause I'm certainly no, not, no. but, uh, uh, but uh, you know, when you're transformed by the love of Christ, you should absolutely desire and hunger to know his word and know who he is and mm -hmm. uh, want to spend time with him. And um, so, you know, uh, that being said, I really, uh, after graduating from uh, college, before we even moved to Tennessee, I started to kind of notice some of these things about myself and how, uh, you know, really my, my bachelor's degree made me feel unequipped in a way, in a, in a healthy way. It made me realize I had to focus so much on all of these performance classes that I learned nothing in my theology. And now I feel like I don't have, I don't have as good of answers as I should. You know, I grew up in the church. There's many things I could answer. I could give you a quick explanation of the gospel, things like that. Uh, many of the essentials uh, that I think everyone should know for their faith. But uh, uh, you know, kind of like what you were saying with your eldership, there were so many things that I did not have a fully uh, fleshed out theology. Um, and I didn't have answers to some of the things that I think I would have been asked had I moved into full-time vocational ministry. And I did many part-time um, vocation, vocational opportunities and internships and things like that. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I think, I think the Lord really helped me by keeping me away from full-time vocational ministry. And the last uh, probably uh, five to seven years or so has just been, what I would really say is it's been this uh, season of, of reforming and, mm. uh, and preparation. I'm, I'm really beginning to understand what I believe. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of uh, some RC sprawl. It's probably not going to, oh. not going to focus good here. Let's see what is reformed theology. I'm Come sure you, you've probably read that one. And uh, you know, really because uh, uh, I think I've called myself reformed in the past before I even knew what it meant. I think mm -hmm. I've called myself evangelical before I knew, um, you know, sort of the, uh, strings attached to that, that label. And, uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm just, I've just been in a season for several years now, um, to your point of taking the reformation red pill. And mm -hmm. I, I, I don't take hard stances yet because I'm still a learner. I feel like there's so much that I am still <clears throat> just processing every day from people that have been doing this for so many more years. Yeah. But, uh, um, but I really do feel like it's starting to come to a head. I'm starting to become, um, you know, much more, uh, understanding in my, in my ways of, in just processing 
all the theology that I've learned over the past five years. But uh, that, that was my own long monologue. But uh, no, that's great, man. There we have it. There we have the, it. Uh, that reminds me. So I think uh, one aha moment that I had over the last few years in this uh, Reformation red pill journey um, was the distinction between the kingdom and the church. Uh, I've, for some people, it may be obvious for me whenever I came to learn this, specifically in the teaching of Dr. Joe Boop, Hmm. um, it really kind of blew my mind because he, he, he lays out and I don't know, maybe it is obvious and I just missed it, but the idea that the, the, biblically speaking, the kingdom and the church are distinct categories and there's overlap. Um, but the kingdom is the rule and reign of Christ that was established at his coming, the gospel of the kingdom. And the church is a distinct institution that Christ instituted, and it's been given particular uh, uh, tools and in the mission, right? So they, the, uh, the proclamation of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and church discipline and excommunication. Uh, the word to train the saints for the work of ministry. So training the saints for the work of ministry and uh, administering the sacraments and uh, church discipline and excommunication. That's the role of the church, and it is the driving force. It's the engine behind kingdom building, but it's it's a distinct category. So the way this applies is I used to kind of have them collapsed. And so if you really are on fire for Jesus and you really love the Lord, well, then you need to be a leader in the church because that because you've got this collapse collapsation between the kingdom and the church. You need to take all that energy and you need to put it to kingdom work, which kingdom right. work is being in, in, in the ministry, being a vocational ministry uh, minister. But then when you realize that, wait a second, the kingdom needs engineers yep. and Amen. cars and like the kingdom needs all these different things that the church doesn't need, right? Um, the kingdom, kingdom advancement, kingdom work is what goes on all throughout the week. But I used to think that, and even the, I see it in the ecclesiological world I just came from. It was always uh, having the church be a part of all of life instead of the church being a, its own distinct institution with its own purpose in the kingdom. Right. The church needed to be in every day at all. Uh, the church every day, the church all week, the church this. Instead of understanding, no, you're a churchman who goes out and advances the kingdom all mm. week. Yeah. Um, and having that those as distinct categories really helped me so much because I used to think, I couldn't help but think, if you really love Jesus, you're going to pursue vocational ministry. You're going to be a missionary. If you're really on fire for Christ, that's what you're going to do. And I knew it wasn't right. I still thought it. I couldn't get around thinking that that's really what you do Absolutely. if you really, really love Jesus. But this whole shift in understanding the kingdom church distinction made me really realize, man, that no, every Christian needs to be doing all of their work, whatever job they do to the, for the glory of God. And you need to be, we need passionate, passionate Christians who are artists and who are build builders and architects and plumbers. We need that everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. And what, what you're hitting on, we've, we've touched on for the last probably five episodes that, you know, there's something about, uh, uh, about God's timing that it seems like uh, that's been a theme that we've been nailing on or at least touching on briefly uh, for multiple um, 
multiple episodes in a row because it, it truly is freeing. And I think I think that's a lot of where my my desire comes from really beating that drum is that there are so many men that need to be freed up from the guilt that the church has, whether intentional or unintentional, uh, the church has really placed a, a guilt on men who don't go into the ministry. Mm. And to your point, we need engineers. We need artists. I mean, you want to know why we're losing the culture war? It's because we abandoned something huge, which is the arts. Yeah, we abandoned yeah. something huge, which is education. You mm. know, we abandoned so many of those, uh, those incredibly impactful areas of our culture that, uh, you know, we, we kept it all into the church. It was all just about mission trips and it, it was all about sending people overseas even mm -hmm. let alone, you know, ministering to the people in your backyard. And obviously I'm painting with a wide brush. There's many churches that, uh, you know, do amazing, incredible, um, mm -hmm. you know, incredible work, uh, with what they've been given. But just talking more broadly about uh, so many of these mega churches and uh, these movements that really uh, are running, running on steam from, mm. you know, from uh, fires set in generations past. Yep. Yeah. And anyways, all that to say, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to hear that uh, so many individuals are really discovering what was wrong with that line of thinking within the church, because I really do. I am seeing a, kind of new generation of individuals that understand that we, we no longer need to pretend that your vocation uh, determines your, your love of Christ. Mm. Um, and that, and that's just, that's so freeing. And so many, so many men who want to do good things, whether that be run for political office or, you know, build a, a six figure business and bless people with that inheritance. And, and uh, um, you know, those men need to need to have their, their conscience uh, alleviated. Mm, that's good. That's good. Amen. I'll yeah. into that. Yeah. So tell me more about post-millennialism because obviously, uh, uh, you know, you're post-millennialist now and uh, that really changed uh, your viewpoint um, on a lot of these things on, on culture building and making an impact. And you started rethinking your impact. So you ended up, uh, shutting down your church plant you moved to tennessee so first of all why tennessee yeah that's a great question we uh when when we were deciding to shut down the church plant i actually moved out to la with my best friends to plant this church and my best friends were my elders with me um and uh one of my best friends from college daniel margheim he uh he told me in um when we went to the philippines on a mission trip for us for a summer he said you let me know where God calls you and I'm there with you. We're, let's do, uh, we're called to do this together. And I was like, word, that's cool. Let's do it. And so he, sure enough, he packed up and moved out to LA with me. He was a lay elder. And, um, and when we decided to shut the church down, uh, we said, I said, Hey, how important is it for us to keep our families together? And he said, it's a high priority. So we, we decided to say, all right, well, we're, we're, what are our options? And we knew we wanted to go to a CREC church because I was leaning towards paedo-baptism in my Reformation mm -hmm. journey, and he was leaning the other way uh, towards credo-baptism. And, uh, and so we were like, well, where do we fit to where we can be worship together and do ministry together? CREC is mm -hmm. they allow for both forms of baptism. And so... 
we just and and plus the culture we experienced was just so rich and so we we knew right. we wanted to be at a CREC church and so I I uh we both had family close to Nashville and we had to be have we had to be near a very good children's hospital because um my boy has some health issues um and so and and his wife was having some some uh health issues as well and so um so Nashville was was the number one pick uh, that we both had family nearby and things like that. And so uh, and there was two CREC churches there, and I looked both of them up. And uh, one had uh, one was robes, and one was no robes. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, you know, in the higher higher church reformed world, uh, the officers of the church will will don robes for uh the worship service um and there's really good reasons for it and i'm actually quite amenable to it now and i wasn't before but um when i i always saw those robes and no robes and i just wasn't ready for the wizardry just quite <laughs> yet and so i picked the no robes one and it was an amazing fit the the pastor of of my church is incredible and i emailed him and told him my situation i said i had some support from my church planting that i that would probably follow me do you need some help so he said, yes, I do. Our church is three years old and I can definitely use the help. So um, we talked through it and I came on on board with uh, what they were doing at Pilgrim Hill Reform Fellowship. And we've been here since May and have been loving it ever since. That's awesome. Yeah, man. So what, you know, I know we don't have time to, to flesh this out fully, but what was, uh, you, you mentioned you were doing a study in Daniel, but yeah. the, what, what kind of verses led you to finally taking that dive on post mill um so it, it was for me there were two particular passages it was really seeing the general direction and becoming convinced convinced of the narrative of scripture mm. beginning with abraham receiving the promise from god that your descendants will be like sand on the seashore and stars in the sky. And none of those metaphors seem to indicate minority or small or anything like that. Hmm. Whereas I was kind of came up to believe that hell would be really way more full than heaven and that most people will go to hell. Hmm. But I hear these promises of sand and stars and all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I just think that that doesn't sit right with me. Um, and so, but that's just, that's just kind of a gut feeling, you know? And then, uh, so, so that, so I start to see this general narrative of scripture seeming to point towards, uh, something more glorious than, um, a struggle till the end of time, where the the church is just a faithful witness, um, and uh, so I start to see this general narrative unfold. But then there were the two passages that really got me was First uh, John two two, um, and you can pull that up. It's uh, um, talking about how Christ is the propitiation, not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Now. Uh, for those of you in the audience who are Calvinists, uh, 
we believe in the doctrine of some call it limited atonement. Others, R.C. Sproul has called it, and I like this one better, definite atonement, which means that Christ, when he was crucified, he died and was the propitiation for his elect and not for the non-elect. Hmm. Um, so in what sense, if you're a Calvinist, can this verse, how, in what sense can Christ have been the propitiation for the sins of the whole world? What could that mean? And so I realized, um, and I was studying, I heard Doug Wilson give a great talk on this, but you either have to obliterate the meaning of world or the meaning of propitiation. Uh, it's the only way you, there's no consistent way to see. So what I mean by that is, uh, you have to either say that, uh, um, he is the propitiation for the whole world means that he provided a way of salvation for the whole world. But if you're Calvinist, you're that, that position is excluded to you. Right. You can't. Um, and so on the other side, you have to demolish the meaning of world. You have to say that when he was the, it says that he was the propitiation for the whole world. That has to then mean, well, not the whole world. What that really means is the elect. But mm. I can't, how can you get to that? Right. So if I, would, it would be disingenuous if I said to you, you know, there's a firework, there was a firework show last night at, uh, at the park in Hendersonville, and the whole town was there. Now, if I said that, and then you, the like, cut scene to, and it was just me and my family, you'd be like, what are you talking about, dude? Like, the whole town was not there. Um, right. So <clears throat> that would be disingenuous. That would be, I would just be a lie. You know, that wouldn't even be the truth. So, um, but if, but if uh, it wasn't just me and my family, but everybody who's anybody, it was packed. The whole park was filled out. The whole park was there or the whole town was there. I, you can say that in a way that is meaningful, um, that makes sense. But it doesn't mean that every man, woman, and child was there. And I'll give you a, a scriptural uh, evidence for this as well. I cannot remember the passage off the top of my head. It was uh, when it says the whole, all of Judea went out to see John the Baptist. I can't remember the passage. Um, but it, it, just as an example of the Bible using terms naturally and not literally, not woodenly, but naturally. So uh, when it says that, all of Judea went out to go see John the Baptist. Well, we don't need to believe that every man, woman, and child in Judea went out to see John the Baptist. What the author is getting at is that everyone, most of the town, it was a thing. Everyone was going. It was the big thing. It was the move. You know, if you were able, you were out there, you know, it's, but there was sick people and there was old people and all the rest. It wasn't every man, woman, and child. So that's an example of how the Bible uses the term naturally and not woodenly. And so that's an example of how Christ could be the propitiation for the whole world. At the end of time, do we believe that every man, woman, and child, when Christ returns, is going to be a Christian? No, but the by and large, the majority of the world uh, is Christianized. It doesn't have to be every man, woman, and child, but it is most of the world. That every you know, uh, the whole town going to see Jerusalem, the whole town, or going out, all of Judea going out to see John the Baptist, or the whole town going to see the fireworks show. In that sense. Christ is the propitiation for the whole world at the end of history. Hopefully that makes sense. That's the only way I can make sense of that passage as a Calvinist, hmm. is in a post-millennial framework. The other piece was uh, Neb uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, where Christ, the, the rock cut by no human hands, comes and destroys the, uh, the statue 
that's the that that is the representation of all the just different empires ending at the Roman Empire at the feet. Um, the Christ comes and destroys that statue, the rock cut by no human hands, and then what happens? It becomes a mountain that grows up into uh, to cover the whole earth. It's there towards the end. Um, let's see. It is uh, verse 40, I think 45, either 34 or 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand and that it broke it in, broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Look at verse 34. So verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Let's see. And then what does it say? It's, that became the whole mountain. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There it is. That was one for me mm. where I where I realized, oh, yeah, this Christ that, that came and destroyed the empires of man, his empire takes over the whole earth. Mm. So those are those are two of my big verses, along with the general narrative of Scripture. And the, uh, simultaneously, I'm reading books about uh, partial preterism. You, mm. you, I mean, that's the key. You've got to, what is your interpretive framework for Revelation? And if you're post mill, it's uh, well. Can't, we don't have time to get into it, but it's also the Olivet Discourse was another big, um, um, big kind of moment for me. Whenever I realized that the that postmillennialism makes the most sense of the Olivet Discourse, as well, um, you know, he says that uh, that uh, um, this generation will not pass away till these things have come to pass. And uh, you know, C.S. Lewis actually called that the most embarrassing uh, verse in the Bible, I think, um, because he couldn't wrap his mind around it but it makes perfect sense if it's if it's referring to the passing of the judaic aeon into the um into the uh the new new covenant era and that um that the uh capstone of that was the destruction of the temple um, right 70, 70 AD. AD. so um which as it turns out you know a generation is 40 years and 40 years from when he said this generation will not pass away till these things have come to pass 40 years from Jesus's ministry at 30, 70 AD. So, right. um, um, that was another big moment for me. Those were, those were probably all of that discourse, first John two, two, and then that Daniel passage were the ones that finally did it for me. Right. Right. Yeah. And you know, there's, uh, I, I mean, we could definitely do many more hours on, on, the yeah post mill sure. and and uh, really unpacking all of this but i know that someone is going to ask this so let's maybe uh, tackle this with uh, uh you know as much as we can in our remaining time but uh trials trials and tribulation so how do we how do we square that when christ said that uh, we will have trials and tribulation post millennialism seems too cheery to to uh fit with that understanding so from the post-millennial perspective was christ just talking about uh 
the early church having trials and tribulation or is Christ talking about the whole church and mm. how do you square that as someone who's now post mill? Yeah, w- there's a few different passages that that refer to trials of various kinds and tribulations. Uh, tribulation, that word in that passage, probably the one you're referring to being the Olivet Discourse. A lot of those, I believe most of those, actually refer to 70 AD and um, the fulfillment of the prophecy of the destruction of the temple. Uh, and so I take a preterist or a partial preterist view of Revelation. So all that stuff in Revelation virtually all of it is referring to in my opinion to um to what's going on in 70 AD and uh um and so there's those passages to me refer to the the early church but then um but then there are other passages that do refer to um difficulty and trials and and so the way I've heard this talked about by Ken Gentry who's a great postmill resource um studied him a lot uh, he was anyway. He's he's a great resource for this. Him and and of course old Dougie Dubs uh, talking about this um, is that it, trials and tribulation they can be relative, right? You've got uh, um, you've got martyrs being you know killed for their faith, but then you've got real real difficulty that the believer faces every day when it comes to the challenge to trust Christ and not worship idols not fall into anxiety not be you know tempted towards uh even in our you know incredibly affluent christian country you know well at least more more, more post-christian now but at least we're not being um having any kind of real persecution we face actual trials that that christ cares about um that are difficult for us and that we have to crucify the flesh every day with its with its desires um, and that will bring about trials in our lives. Um, and so there's a relative aspect to it uh, that, um, and without getting into seeing the actual passages involved, I think that would, that makes sense of a lot of them um, in my, in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I've mentioned before, but I, uh, you know, I'm still a bit undecided on the eschatology aspect. Um, but you know, one of the things that was, that's definitely, uh, a great, a great, uh, testimony for post-millennialists is that, uh, there are many, many post-millennialist individuals among the sort of Christian, uh, creator, um, realm that, uh, mm. they're really living life like they believe it. Yeah, you know, they're they're having large families. They're starting Christian businesses. They're building new institutions. They're actually planting deep roots, which is what ultimately how your story ends. You know, you yeah. guys are, uh, shut down the church plants so that you can do something uh, more realistic. You couldn't afford to have children in L.A., so you moved somewhere where you could. You you couldn't afford to start a business in such a high regulated state, and so you moved somewhere where you could. You you know you you couldn't actually create institutions, put down roots, um, or, and in your circumstance, join an institution that was already established that could teach you so that you can actually be uh, better equipped than you were by your initial, uh, acts 29, uh, sending church, uh, you know, you, you, you needed those things in order to actually uh, live out the post mill lifestyle of believing that you are setting down roots you are the wise man that are leaving an inheritance to your children and your children's mm-hmm. children 
uh, you know, that's probably the biggest, uh, biggest testimony that the, so many of these post mill guys have. Now there's obviously, there's always exceptions to, uh, to that. And there's always going to be the individual that, uh, because they think that they, we win down here, they're sitting on their butt doing nothing. Yeah. Um, but I think it's much more common in, uh, my anecdotal experience to see individuals who believe that everything's going to, uh, going down the tubes all the way until Christ comes. Uh, you know, we're just waiting for maybe the rapture or we're just, uh, we're just sitting around because Jesus is coming back on Thursday and the, the culture is meant to get this bad. So why bother fixing it? You know, the, the house is meant to fall apart. So why should I get up and, uh, uh you know, patch the foundation or mm -hmm. replace the shutters when the church is meant to fall apart? And it's like, well, that's a self-defeating prophecy, first of all. But, uh, uh but beyond that, uh, it's just more common to see that with the pre-millennial, um, uh, kind of, uh, um, viewpoint. Um, but you know, for me, um, I'm still undecided about that, and uh, uh, there are there are guys like uh, Vody Bauckham that uh, <laughs> don't believe in in post millennialism that uh, mm -hmm. are is is living as though he does, and that yeah. is uh, that's what we talked about last episode. Michael and I both uh, uh, try very hard to live like we believe believe that uh, post millennialism is true, uh, <laughs> meaning we we are trying to put down roots and we are trying mm -hmm. to to build and um, leave an inheritance to our children and our children's children, and that's ultimately what I think every believer needs to do, regardless of your eschatology. Hmm. I think that it's important. I, I like to have these uh, these conversations because to me, I didn't even hear about these different viewpoints in eschatology until I went to college. Hmm. You know, I, I believe that premillennialism was just the assumed viewpoint of all Christians right. because it is the dominant one in America. Hmm. Uh, it's not the dominant one historically, but in America it is. Um, but uh, that being said, I think it's honestly really important to have these conversations because there are many individuals that probably will not join the church because of what we call loser theology, mm -hmm. meaning we lose down here and why bother? And because of that, we see apathy among our church leaders and it's not a, it doesn't paint a attractive vision for people to join. And, and it's not that we want to be seeker sensitive and only be worrying about, uh, you know, painting a vision that will reach unbelievers. But uh, I'm just saying in general, there are Christians even that uh, don't like going to church because, they feel like their church has this ho-hum attitude of, uh, of, you know, doom and gloom and no one's painting a positive vision of the future, but post millennial post millennialism really does paint that positive future. So to me, if, if, uh, a couple of individuals decide to, you know, um, fully embrace the church and embrace, uh, uh embrace Christ as Lord of their lives, um, because post-millennialism is sort of an attractive introduction to Christianity. You know, I, I'd rather more people know about post-millennialism than not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just yeah. Decide for yourself what, esch what eschatology um, stance you want to take. Hmm. But, uh, you know, if post-millennialism is a positive picture for you and uh, gives you some hope for the future in a time that uh, uh, black pills are everywhere, uh, you know, hopefully it can be some... Um, refreshing uh a refreshing viewpoint that maybe you hadn't heard before and uh maybe you'll become post mill and you'll join a crec church and you'll uh you'll have 12 kids and build the new christendom uh that way after being inspired by uh by our conversation tonight come on now but, uh, but yeah i mean anything anything to add to that uh no we uh me and the my two elders 
are going to be recording an episode on post-millennialism for our Reformation Red Pill podcast coming up. So Perfect. you can be on the lookout for that. Our our goal is to steel man opposing views hmm. uh, as best we can and and then give our biblical reasoning for why we hold to. Um, so I have this Reformation Red Pill uh, journey mapped out. So we'll cover you know, uh, post-millennialism, confessionalism, baptism, uh, ministry philosophy of on t tone, winsomeness, cultural reformation, things like that. So, um, so that'll be coming out. We've, we've already shot a couple of episodes and, uh, and th that'll be coming soon. So for anyone who's interested to, to get our take on that, you can look for those. Perfect. Well, where can people go to find you? You of course mentioned the titles of your podcast, but, uh, what's your social media handles and where should people be on the lookout to make sure that they don't miss uh, these upcoming episodes? Yeah. So Hames underscore Joshua at, uh, X formerly known as Twitter. That's where I'm most active. I'm really pressing into YouTube. Uh, that's, that's a space that, uh, I really want to make reform theology, this dark roast reform theology accessible to the next generation, the Gen Z kind of, uh, punchy edits and fast, you know, uh, kind of take things topical and, um, uh, for our little short attention spans. Um, the guy, Jamie Bambrick is doing a good job with some of that stuff. I don't know if you've seen any of his stuff, but, um, um, doing some stuff like that. So that's at the, the standard with Joshua is the name of that YouTube channel, the standard with Joshua. And, um, uh the the podcast called reformation red pill podcast that'll be coming out in the next few weeks but yep twitter youtube and podcasts are coming out awesome great well keep us up to date with all the stuff that you're doing with the forge we love the name by the way yeah yeah, yeah. that's yeah. goes hand in hand with us so we mm -hmm. we really appreciate that awesome well thank you so much joshua it's great having you we'll definitely have to have you back sometime to uh join us for another discussion thank you everyone who have uh been listening to this podcast all the way through we really appreciate your viewership or your listening ear depending on where you're consuming this content feel free to like us share subscribe if you're on youtube rumble um, go ahead and give us five stars if you're on the podcast apps. We really appreciate it. It does help us. It really will uh, benefit us in the long term to see more people reach our content. And uh, if you have any feedback, feel free to leave it in the comments. We really appreciate that. And uh, if you want us to do more topics on eschatology, post-millennialism, or anything that we discussed here, let me know and we can do another episode similar to this. Um, be sure to join us next week, though. We're going to be talking about whether or not uh, libertarianism is compatible with Christianity. So uh, we got a, a pretty big name uh, libertarian content creator coming on to join us for that. So it's uh, uh, again, we're going to make sure that uh, that that viewpoint is well represented if that's something that interests you. So feel free to join us there. Anyways, thank you all again, and we will see you next time.